This is Industry Relations, a podcast that's at the intersection of real estate and technology from an insider's perspective with Rob Hahn and Greg Robertson. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Industry Relations with Rob and Greg. This is your co-host, the notorious Rob Hahn. And as always, my favorite co-host, my only co-host, the fabulous Greg Robertson, rubbing up his mittens. <laughs> I'm, walk, ex- fam. <laughs> I'm so excited about this. Hola, Rob. How are you, man? I'm doing good, man. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm going to start throwing in a lot of like British uh, street slang because I just finished watching Netflix <laughs> Top Boy, which if you haven't seen yet, it's actually quite good. Just Top Boy? T-O-P? It's Top Boy. Okay. And there's a lot All of right. this like British Jamaican like street slang stuff. And one of my favorites has become this uh, Wagwan. Like Wagwan. It means what's going on. But, you know. Yeah, I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, today's episode is actually a real special one because we have a very special guest that we're both very, very excited uh, to be able to speak to. Um, he's someone that we've mentioned in all of our, you know, talks about the commission lawsuit, but uh, we managed to get him on. So let's just bring him in. Mr. Ed Zorn. How are you, Ed? Good, Rob. Greg, <laughs> you guys? Yeah, great to see you. Uh, I'm going to let my let the fabulous one kind of do the intro and just uh, let the audience know who you are and where you, where you be from, blood. Where you be from, blood. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ed, I really appreciate you being on here. For people who don't know, Ed's the uh, Vice President and General Counsel of CRMLS, um, which is the largest MLS organization in the country. Um, and, you know, he's also, uh, I think he's got a lot of great background to be really to kind of add to our discussion here because you were a, a plaintiff attorney, you were also a mediator. So you know how these kind of trials work out with settlements and how you would present some of the stuff in trial. Uh, and, um, you've been whispering in my ear a little bit about some of the stuff that's going on. I know that you're one of the, one of the, and uh, listen, there's a lot of people that remember this club, which is the yelling at the radio or yelling at your podcast player club. Um, hopefully that's mostly to Rob, not me. Okay. Cause you're, cause I hear that. I like, I, I'm screaming at you. You don't know what you're talking about. So <laughs> it's probably a 50, 50 thing there. Yeah. But welcome, Ed. And thank you so much yeah, again welcome. for, for joining us. Great. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm uh, glad to be have the opportunity to chit chat with you guys a little bit and uh, maybe bring some some insight. Probably at the forefront, you know, obviously with my role with CRMLS, I do have to disavow the fact that while I'm a lawyer, like Rob says, I'm not your lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the things I'm going to talk about are just my opinions as, you know, one guy who's observing some things in the industry. This is not, you know, CRMLS's perspective. Yep. Right. Art Carter yep. does a great job at leading the organization and and I get to give him some advice, but he doesn't have to follow it. Uh, and sometimes he doesn't, which is probably the wiser way to go. And, uh, uh, so this is just my opinions. This is not, you know, the policies or concepts of CRM lesson anyway. Right on. So appropriately disclaimer, why don't we start at the obvious place, which is Burnett, unless we have some shocking developments like later today over the weekend it's going to trial on monday yes right and two of the five defendants have settled and we're going to get into some of the settlement things but just on top of your head i mean what do you expect we're going to see come monday or let's just say next week so yeah so the the way this trial is going to probably lay out is it's scheduled for three weeks some things we know for certain already uh the plaintiffs are going to get the whole first week 
So all next week could be a little ugly for us on the real estate side, right? We're yeah. going to get the reports coming out daily, probably, of the kind of testimony that's coming out about the practices that are being, you know, that are criticized, you know, from the plaintiff. So you're going to see that all of next week. Uh, I think come, some things are going on right now. Right now, the jury selection is going on as we speak. Uh, right now, this is, you know, obviously we're talking on Friday uh, before the trial starts. Really? So it's uh, still going on? Uh, I believe it's it's today is jury selection. Okay. So they will have picked the six and then they will seat the six on Monday. Correct. That's the idea as long as they get through. Um, some things we know about the jury. There will be no homeowners on this jury. Uh, the reason we know that is one of the claims the plaintiffs are bringing is for an injunction, right? A, a request to modify and change the rules of NAR. Well, you think about that, it means that anyone who currently owns a home could be impacted by the outcome of this case because there'll be a different set of rules to, to move forward under. So as a result, that bars them from being able to sit on the jury. So there'll be no homeowners on this jury. Um, and then the rest are people who couldn't, you know, talk themselves out of a three week trial. Right. Uh, so that's right. going to be, you know, your <laughs> jury pool. Uh, and so Before should, you uh, leave that point, week. <laughs> I've been mentioning that in my opinion, there will also be no realtors or family members of realtors on the jury. Is that? Oh, definitely. Yeah, that, yeah. that is absolutely will be the case. Yeah. yeah. Normally, uh, those types of, again, anyone who would be potentially impacted or immediate family would be impacted by the decision as a general rule is not permitted to sit on a jury. So we're talking about six renters. Yes, and NAR hopes that what we're looking at is maybe a couple of retirees who are renter. Well, previous home. homeowners, previous homeowners are yeah, okay. So, so, yeah, so right? previous so, homeowners, yeah. right, that have maybe maybe have multiple sales in their career. That that would be a good person for NAR to you know uh, want to have on the jury. But yes, currently people who don't own a home. And, and so just just be, to be just to clarify real quick, Rob, this is we're recording this on October thirteenth. That's right. So the trial starts the, is it the 16th, right? Yeah, Monday, 16th. Yeah, yeah, Monday the 16th. So just just for, yeah. Right. And our episode goes out Wednesday the 18th. So yeah. So we'll bring we'll, in the, the, middle of these, the yeah. plaintiff's presentations by the time you guys start listening. Exactly. And if you've ever seen that, I mean, ever been involved in that, it's, it's like the worst because it's always the last person you listen to that convinced you, even if it's on your side. It's like, so it's awful, yeah. right? Yeah. All right, it, so- it's a process. Yeah. Yeah. So real quick, because the civil jury is for sure six people, not 12, you know, 12 is for criminal and there'd be like two alternates. You know, in, in the federal court in Missouri, I'm not sure how many alternates they would have, but normally there are a couple of alternates so that if a juror gets sick, something happens in their family emergency, they could have someone who's been in the courtroom listening who then can take the seats to participate in the deliberations, which will happen um, you know, three weeks later. Okay. All right. So the first week is plaintiff's presentation. They get to go, you know, again, we're, we're basing on like court drama that we've seen. And then the defense can get up and be like, I object your honor, do all that stuff. But yep. they don't really get to like cross exam. Oh, do they get to cross examine next week or is that yes. during the No, NAR okay. will have the opportunity to cross examine witnesses next week. Uh, so the plaintiffs will put their case in chief forward, right? They're going to try to argue that you know the sellers have been damaged by you know paying too much in these agreements, uh, and because of this rule, uh, NAR is going to then cross-examine those witnesses uh, and try to you know move forward with the concept that these rules are good; they help the community, 
it'll be interesting to see what happens. One of the other things we know is that there was a motion in limine. So if you know, if you recall, previously there was a motion for summary judgment in that motion that was denied, which again was no surprise. Uh, the court said that there's a potential that the case would move forward on a per se ruling. So when you have a price fixing case, it is considered to be so egregious if there's an agreement to fix prices that there's a, a concept under law that there's no offsetting good that can be done if you're if you're fixing prices. And so you wouldn't be able to show or demonstrate the benefits to consumers as a result of the rule. And the court hinted pretty strongly in the motion to summary judgment ruling that he saw this as a per se case. Well, some good news for NAR and the corporate defendants were there were some motions in limine, uh, a few dozen that actually I've been like, like 40 or 50 uh, that I reviewed uh, before the case started. A motion in limine is brought by the lawyers to kind of pre-argue with the court what kind of evidence is going to be allowed and what's not. So instead of the high drama you see on TV where someone screams objection, um, you know, we try to get rid of as much of that as possible before the, the uh, trial even starts so that the jury doesn't get information that's not rightfully in front of them. Because the reality is it's hard to disregard something you've heard. And one of the arguments that the plaintiffs tried to make was there should be no evidence about the benefits of this rule it, and, and that NAR should be barred from bringing any such evidence. And good news is NAR won that argument. The court is gonna allow, at least at the beginning of the process and the beginning of the case, evidence about the pro-competitive aspects of these rules. Now, can the judge change his mind anywhere in the process? Absolutely. If at some point the court feels like the bar has been met, that a price-fixing conspiracy or scheme has been you know, properly uh, proven, then could he stop the, that evidence from moving forward later on in the case? Yes. But at least at the beginning, NAR has a plan to assert yeah. the pro-competitive aspects and then handle any issues at the jury instruction level. So, so this is really critical because as you and I have talked about it and like our offline conversation and whatnot, one of the big things that I really focused on was that summary judgment motion where Judge Bao, I think that's how you say his name, in the Burnett case is like per se analysis applies. And so you said it's a clear, strong hint. I felt like it was a ruling, but maybe I'm wrong. Like, So how do you see that it, interacting with the motion in limine? So it's clearly not a ruling at the, at the motion. Remember, when you do a motion for summary judgment, the judge as, assumes right, that the facts for the plaintiff that they, that they have put forward are all accurate and true. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then he has to make his ruling based on those assumptions. So based on the assumptions of all those elements being true, he hinted that per se might be the way to go. But he acknowledged that those things may not be true. There may be countervailing evidence. There may be evidence against that. Or they may never actually have a sufficient amount of evidence to actually put in, in the trial. Maybe there's an evidentiary objection. So what they were going to use to prove that point won't see the light of day. Right. So he has to leave open the fact that NAR's argument can carry the day. So when would the per se rule come into play in this trial? Because it is a jury trial. Is it the jury instruction stage where the jury would say, hey, listen, per se analysis applies. So when you go consider the evidence now, 
ignore all of the positive pro-competitive benefits. Like, is that when it would actually be ruled? So no question will be part of the jury instructions. Okay. Right? That's NAR's desire. The plaintiffs, though, if the plaintiffs feel like they've put forward a sufficient amount of evidence to convince the court that the first threshold has been that there is this agreement, could the court decide when NAR is moving forward and putting forth evidence that the evidence that NAR is putting forward would be confusing or more prejudicial than probative? That's the really the, mm-hmm. the evidentiary standard that a court uses to determine whether they're going to let it in. That's when that would be done. So my thought is that as NAR has the freedom to cross-examine, ask questions, push back against expert testimony, will the pro-consumer aspects be allowed? I think so, entirely for the first week. The question's going to be, as NAR starts moving forward, will the court still give NAR that latitude? Because there's a the concept that you can't unring the bell. It's super easy as a lawyer to say, hey, Your Honor, let me get, put all this evidence in that I want. And if it's not appropriate and it doesn't meet the mustard or, or carry the day in your eyes as the judge, just tell the jury to disregard it, right? So even mm-hmm. though you sat here for two weeks, listening to us to drone on and on for two weeks, just disregard all that. That's okay. Courts don't like to do that. So the judge will weigh in probably sometime in that second to third week. And, and we'll get a little indication of how that argument is going. So basically, there's a scenario where, let's say even by Friday or, you know, next Friday, the Monday after, the judge could come out and be like, hey, we are the plaintiffs. Hey, NR, you got to cross-examine them. I'm satisfied they met whatever. We're going to do per se going forward. So shut up about the pro-competitive benefits. I mean, that's possibility is what you're saying. That's a possibility. And then you could just chalk that up as one more thing to put in the bucket that NAR will have for Appeal. an appealable that's right. an appealable ruling, right? That the, the, right. the NAR be able to argue, hey, that's an error. We should have had the opportunity to argue that and let that right. issue go to the, you know, th- those kind of elements will be what will happen. All right. So let's, can I just get the non-attorney guy fucking thing in here, right? <laughs> I was hoping so I, you would chime in. Otherwise, yes. Ed and I are going to start talking. <laughs> okay, gotta, yeah, federal exactly. rules of civil procedure. <laughs> did you ask for a commission? You're goddamn right I did. Um, so <laughs> did you say commission was free? You're goddamn right I did. Um, so Ed and Rob, just round, real quick, one, one word. One word, uh, uh, one word answer. Um, Ed, do you think NAR is going to win this lawsuit? Yes or no? One word. Maybe. Oh. You're asking a lawyer for a one word answer? Too? Come on. I just an, intuitively. I can, so here it is. NAR oh, can win this oh, lawsuit. Here we go. Right. NAR Sorry? can win this lawsuit. They can't. Even on a per se basis, Rob. I, I, I think even if the court rules per se, NAR can win. Because I think there's definitely an argument that can be made that the sellers didn't were not damaged. Sellers don't pay the buy side commission. The buyer does. And to the extent that that argument is out there, NAR wins. If NAR also has some technical arguments around whether these sellers are the direct purchaser of services or not, that's another very technical. I won't bore your audience with, you know, the Illinois brick case and all of that. But there are some technical arguments that NAR. So there is still a chance that NAR wins on the emotion of it, on the just. And this happens with juries because I tell Art this all the time when he says, hey, what's our risk here? Well, I'm going to tell you, if you have all the facts and all the law in your case, you got about a 25 to 30 percent chance that you're still going to lose. 
right? And that's yeah. because juries don't follow jury instructions. Juries don't follow complicated analytical contractual chains through evidence. They don't care. They just do what they want to do and they do what they think is right. And the jury instructions and the law be damned. Right. And so that's why there is no one solid. NAR can absolutely win this case. Is it an uphill battle because the plaintiffs hold the emotional cards and the, the heartstring arguments? Yeah, that sits on the plaintiff's side. I can tell you, though, okay. I'm not very impressed by the plaintiff's uh, trial briefs at this point. Rob? I mean, I, I'm already a record. I don't, I think, given, and for me, it was twofold. It was that it's a jury trial, right? And that it's per se, I think it makes it very hard for an air twin. And if the judge comes out early with per se, so if by Friday it's like, listen, it's going to be per se, so NAR, shut up about the benefits. Yes, NAR could appeal that ruling. I don't see how an error wins this case. But I mean, NAR it is back to, with what Ed said. I mean, it's, uh, that bell is rung, right? I mean, they could still have that in their heads, right? So, But even on a per se ruling, Rob, it, it doesn't matter from the standpoint that even in a per se case, and, and even if there is, quote unquote, price fixing under the per se rule, it doesn't matter. These plaintiffs that are sitting in front of the court today were not damaged, right? Because the buy, buyers are the ones who paid the fee not the sellers. So that's, I think, that's still an argument that is available to NAR, even in a per se case. That may be the case, Ed, but here's the thing. Like, number one, I've not yet heard NAR mention that one single time. That's my concern. Right? So <laughs> if that was such a strong It's a back thing, pocket thing. Just to bring this out, man. Yeah, maybe. Number two, uh, one of the reasons why Leader versus NAR was dismissed right, by Judge Woods. Now, granted, it's a different judge. Right. But the same judge who's doing Murrow versus NAR, Leader versus NAR was brought before. And that was the one where the buyers were suing. And she was just kind of like, listen, I'm already dealing with the seller side of things. So let me get through that first. And I think she dismissed it without prejudice. I don't think it was right. with prejudice. I I think she said, right? Like, right. just hold off. <laughs> like, let me see if I could deal with this at the seller side. Yeah. Um, and then okay, just, really uh, the other final thing for me is – I, I think it's the claim is not that the sellers are damaged per se. It's the whole claim is this system that NAR and the MLS is the cooperative compensation raise the price of everything, right? So I think the convert the the to me again I'm thinking about arguing in front of a jury of six renters who couldn't get out of jury duty. Right. <laughs> I'm agreeing with you tough. here. So right? I think they yeah. lose. Yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing with you here that <laughs> it's an uphill battle on the emotional just objective, hey, this isn't fair kind of layer. I understand that the plaintiffs have an easier road to hoe on that. Um, but yeah, it's trial, baby. And, man. and, and, and can we can happen? <laughs> yeah. Can we rewind here? Because I know that some of the listeners will be just like me and go, just explain in, in like I'm a five-year-old when you meet, we, per se, per se, per se, right? You've been saying that. And I, I think I understand it, but maybe somebody could just add, like, as you're speaking to a young child, what, what that means here? So there's, there's various standards that get applied with regard to what you have to prove in a case. And when you're dealing with a price fixing, the typical, let me start this way, the typical antitrust case, what you're supposed to do is there's some kind of anti-competitive thing. Let me use an example in our, in our industry, exclusive listing agreements. 
you do realize none of you signed an exclusive listing agreement to go to the dentist the last time you sat in a dentist chair. And there's no agreement between the dentist groups that says, hey, if Greg sits in my chair, the dentist down the street is not allowed to talk to Greg for the next year. And if you do talk to Greg, we're going to fine you $15,000, right? That would be considered antitrust violation, right? That's that's against consumers. Dentists should be able to free to get customers as they want, right? So it's clearly going to hurt the customer. We get that in real estate. Why? Because that is a necessary element for the functioning of the multiple listing service to encourage listing agents and sellers to put properties into this community where everybody sees to it. To cooperate. Cooperate. And when you weigh the restrictive nature of what an exclusive listing agreement is against the pro-consumer benefits of the MLS itself, the MLS greatly outweighs and is so much beneficial compared to the restriction on you getting a new client that is placed. That's called the rule of reason. And we put this on a scale. And what the judge is saying, what the law says, when we're talking about price fixing, and there's proof of an agreement of competitors to fix prices, there's no amount of consumer benefit that you're ever getting from that, that, we, that we're ever even gonna put that on a scale. Price fixing is so wrong at its core, it's per se a violation without having to weigh anything against it. So I don't know, Greg, if that maybe helps. Yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, so let, let's move on slightly. Um, actually, before we move on, I did have a question for you because of your background as an actual litigator, actual mediator. In the settlement, and I'm assuming the same case, same holds for anywhere, but Remax settlement clearly says that they agree to cooperate and that up oh. to three executives will testify. And I think it's only in Merle, I think. So the question is, do you insist like the plaintiffs actually calling like one of, I don't know, Nick, you know, to the stand and saying, testify for us. Like, do you anticipate anything like that happening? This is an excellent example as I heard you guys talk about this, where I scream at the radio and turn it off. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, is, is your guys' description of what cooperation is. So in a case, when you're litigating, when you're a party to the case, I have certain rights as an attorney to force you to go to trial, to get documents out of you, to have you sit for depositions, Right. And and I don't have to chase you where if you're not a party, I have to do subpoenas and there's a different set of rules that are more complicated and protect you better when you're not a party. So now when we get to a settlement with somebody and they're going to leave the case and this is why it was in, in Morel that you referenced this. Right. So they're going to leave the case. But. I still want to call them to testify. I still want to use and have them authenticate because I may want to still use some of the evidence I, I gathered from them in my case against the people who remain. I don't want to have to chase you and follow all of the non-party hassles that happen as a lawyer. So every settlement agreement I've ever seen has this cooperation clause in it. It's not that I'm going to cooperate and help you win your case. That is not what they agree to. What they agree to do is if you send me an email that says, go to court on this day, I promise that I will show up. And if I, if I, you're gonna ask me questions about authenticating documents or business records, I'm going to authenticate that. I'm not gonna fight you. 
throw a bunch of objections up and make that road harder for you just because that's what we do as lawyers so we can charge you more money, right? We create all of this chaos. Uh, it's great billable events. Um, and I'm not going to do that. That's what cooperation means. It has nothing to do with my requirement. Turning states evidence you. or something. Yeah, that's right. not, a thing. Yeah. not at all. Yeah. Everybody has a duty to tell the truth and that's, that's the duty. And I'm not going to help you prosecute your case. I'm just not going to put hassles in your head. So it, it got has it. nothing to do with helping you move your case forward. Okay. So um, moving on to that, <clears throat> I guess one of the questions I had, I fully expected because the REMAX settlement was so generous, like so cheap. I fully expect the KW and home services to settle. I know we still have a few days and I know you could settle in the midst of trial, I believe. What's your expectation? Do you think those guys go the distance? NAR has come out and said, we're going the distance, right? They made that very well, clear. Well, that's what they would, I would say, anybody would say yeah, that. They, right? they could settle too. not signed a settlement agreement is going to say they're going the distance. That, yeah. Uh, let me tell you this. So, yeah. so I've, I've handled hundreds of cases. Now I'm gonna go back to my plaintiff days when I was an attorney. I have had people yell in my face the day before trials start. I will never pay you X dollars. A goddamn single dime, yeah. Right. Well, not even a single dime, right? But but not over a certain millions of X, right? Right. And we show up the next day, answer ready for trial. And guess what? They quadrupled their last offer and paid me triple what they told me they would never pay me. Right. So that happens constantly. Um, so I don't put much stock in that. I think what you're going to see is Keller Williams will probably settle. Right. Probably here in the next few days. I think the hardest one to settle is going to be the Berkshire Hathaway, you know, grouping of oh, wow, defendants. Okay, and why? the reason I say that is they're structured well. They're a well-run machine, right? With company after company, with subsidiary, with you know the grandmaster at the top, who is doing what? Reaching it every month or every quarter and skimming off all of the profit, which is exactly what you do if you own a company, right? Greg, maybe you did this with WR Studios, right? Every month you go in and you go, hot damn, we made so much money. We just throw that into Greg's personal bank account, right? And the next month, WR Studios has no money to, to, to work with, right? And that's fine. That's legal. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Having the owners take dividends out of the company is legit. And I think that makes it more challenging for the Berkshire Hathaway Home Services groups to resolve because they're probably sitting on very little money. I think there's a motivation for them to still settle at some kind of number because really the plaintiffs would have a threat. Hey, you know what? If this doesn't work out, nothing stops us from filing cases against your biggest brokers and taking the same case going directly against brokers, right? Because you don't have those protections that we're giving the other settling parties Realize all those other settling parties, it doesn't cover just the corporate entities. It covers each of the individual brokers and agents and everybody underneath. So I think there's a motivation to settle, but it's a much lower motivation. And that's why there's a chance that I also think specifically with the corporate defendants, I've always considered the case very weak against the corporate defendants. To prove that they were involved in the creation of an operation of this scheme is not easy to do, right? This scheme predated all of them, all of them. This system of how commissions are shared and all that always existed. So that's, that's a very uphill road for the plaintiffs to hoe 
in in trying to get that done. So so I could see a some like a Berkshire Hathaway saying, well, you know, we'll, we'll take our chances at, at trial. And remember, you have some likely spots where people settle after the first week. If things go horribly wrong for the defendants, that's a settlement point, right? Right after the trial, before an appeal bond hearing, another excellent point, right? And I think that's the most likely spot for NAR to sit if NAR doesn't outright win. Let me let me ask this to to you, Rob. Going on, like just my last question. You know, we we've been pontificating on this on this pod about the value of NAR, right? Because of all the things that are going on, people leaving, whatever. Yeah. If NAR wins this, right? And just like they they won the DOJ thing and every, you know, these guys have been actually fucking taking names, right? Mm -hmm. If NAR wins this, it, can't you, can you say, hell yes, these guys deserve every goddamn dollar I've sent them because this is really getting at the heart of the matter, right? Of, of, you know, of me being a practicing real estate agent, right? I mean, it, can I posit that a little bit? What do you think? I'm curious what Ed thinks about it. I think the answer is not yet because sure, NAR could win, but I think the plaintiffs could appeal. Okay, but it, let's and, just wait, say like, it's a, it's the a, it's a, they part. win. I'm saying they win, right? But I'm saying plaintiffs could appeal, number one. Number two, the DOJ has gone nowhere. So NAR is not out of the woods, right? And if you're saying the value of NAR of the $1,400 a year that you're paying as a, as a realtor member is because of winning at lawsuits, I think that's a weak, that's pretty weak. Well, winning a lawsuit that basically goes to the underpinning of how you get compensated. I mean, that's fucking something. Uh, like I said, you're not out of the woods, but that's my take. I mean, what do you think, Ed? Uh, I think, I think you both have a point. Damn, look at me being lawyer. Um, so <laughs> I think Greg is right that NAR should get lots of kudos, lots of credit to go to the leadership of and the attorney group. Of, I mean, of everybody's been giving them shit. Everybody's settled, do all. I mean, me yeah, too, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. everybody's been giving exactly, them shit. Right, right. Kudos to them if they pull that off. That, that's a great thing. And, and NAR should get lots of credit and a lot of love for that event. At the same time, commissions are still leaving the multiple listing service and will not be allowed in the MLS. Right. Because the Federal Trade Commission is going to take that event and they're not going to wait for an appeal. They're going to say, look, plaintiffs had their shot. Consumers tried to to right this ship. The system and the way the laws work right now didn't allow them to do that. Here we come, FTC, DOJ and say, yep. nope, shut it down. Yank yep. the commissions out of the MLS and move on. And by the way, and I've gone on record of saying this, I also don't think that's a big deal whatsoever. I don't think it matters yeah. that that the commissions leave the MLS. So what? Right. Right. No, I, I think, think I think actually, I actually think it could be a positive thing. I mean, I think positive. transparency is is yep. a better thing for us as an industry for sure. I think it's better for buyer agents. Yeah. It's I've I've written that. I said, look, yeah. this yeah. could end up being really beneficial. Yeah. All right, well, go, you know, go, and then go, 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 going back to the DOJ, like Lena Khan and those guys aren't doing too well on the on their antitrust stuff. They lost to Microsoft. Right. They lost to. Uh, I forget the other one. Now they're trying Amazon, right? Which is her bread and butter because that's where she started. Um, so they're not doing too well with uh, with a lot of the things that they've they've tried to kind of change. So I like the odds. Yeah, and that's why I say the FTC would I think just would just come out with a rule. I, yeah. I, I don't think you necessarily have litigation, right? Why should the DOJ fight against 
a ruling that is already against them? Why don't they just hand it over to the FTC and just write a rule? They don't, they don't need to file a lawsuit, right? It's not like they're stopping the merger where Lena Khan can't win a case, right? This is, she just has the authority to, to, to add a couple of sentences to, to some code. Yep. Let me let me ask one more question on on this little wonky here, because I've when I've talked to both of you guys, um, we we bring this up, and this is like the they have to like you're saying on these settlements, it appears they're saying all their franchisees is it only in those states that this is in, or is they have they expanded the class? I think is the words that you guys are using. So, I mean, because that's been a, a thing, a rough thing with you guys is like, well, they could settle this, but it's still going to invite copycat lawsuits i mean are we were we are we the out of the woods with the copycat stuff based upon the settlements we're seeing or we're still is that this still a, gonna be my a, question a for ed as well so this perfect yeah, yeah basically i think you frame it in my settlement class right? right it looks like there's talking about a settlement class that's the entire country what's the likelihood of success and acceptance of that absolute that's normal Right. It is normal to have a class action lawsuit that is in a smaller jurisdiction, a smaller group. And then when you settle, like in this case, here's where the argument goes, right? You guys all watched and you all read the class certification motions and you saw all the categories. And one of them was, do these class representatives represent adequately things that are happening across these 20 marketplaces? If we use Morel as an example. So all you do is you stipulate. Right. And this is what the agreements do. The parties stipulate that the, the plaintiffs in the Morrell case and the Sitzer case, and by the way, the MLS pin case is involved in this, right? Are representative and the claims and everything are exactly the same for the whole country. So we're going to expand the plaintiff class. And instead of just the plaintiff class being in these 20 markets plus Missouri and MLS pin, we're going to make the class every seller in the whole country in the last four years, right? And by doing that, you expand that class around the whole country and everybody gets the protections, right? Now, for that- then Rob, you'd argue that that was only be, you can't do that. It's gotta be a law or something. I I think it's because I read a couple of Supreme Court cases where I said asbestos lawsuit, there might be a different issue here. so I'm like, maybe, you know, I could be wrong about that. I mean, you know, the, I can't remember the M- MCHEM, I think MCHEM products yeah, is the it, case. It, it's different. Whether, but, but remember, on those cases, what you had was that those settlements related to future claims from people who didn't even know they were hurt yet. So you had a lot of logistical issues on those asbestos mm-hmm. cases because you're setting up a class for people that don't know their damage, don't know they're a member of the class, and it needs to last 30 years. None of those parameters are here. None. Right. 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 This is backwards in time, much easier to administer. We know exactly who these people are. No one's going to get added to that group. Right. right? So, so I'm going to suggest to you the court will have the authority and the capability of, of expanding the class so the plaintiffs can That's be great news. the whole country. That's great news. Yeah. If there's right. a settlement. So if, there's, right, a, if there's a more question. global settlement. Right now, it's only covering the franchisees, the brokers who are part of the people who settled, right? But if NAR resolves this, and I know this for a fact, right? NAR said this multiple times. They will not settle this unless it is global. Uh, yeah, they all shouldn't. MLSs, yeah, all they shouldn't. Yeah. yeah, they shouldn't, right? Yeah. yeah. All the yeah. brokers, right? So 
Um, but they're, and they're also open to it. I don't know if you, you saw the last statement that got sent out by Katie to kind of all the AORs of, hey, we're going to start trial. Here's what we're going. There, there was a sentence in there that, that specifically talked about the fact that, I think I have it right here, right? Uh, you know, that, that anywhere has always been open to resolution outside of the courtroom, right? So, so that's, that's still on the board. Just because you're going to fight hard in court does not mean you won't consider an opportunity to resolve it. So two questions, and they're going to seem – they're related. Trust me, right? So the first question is, does the court ever reject a settlement because it doesn't provide enough in damages to the plaintiffs? So Have you ever seen that happen in a class action? It, it can, right? You saw a little side of that in the no-select case for MLS. Yeah. Bit, right. Where all the money went to lawyers and nothing went to the plaintiffs, right? So you saw the judge interject herself. To say, no, 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 this is not fair. We need to take care of the, the plaintiffs that are here. Um, but the reality is, and, and Rob, I know you've talked about the you know, 20 billion, 600 billion, 50 trillion, whatever. My point is, as a plaintiff <laughs> lawyer, I used, to, I used to tell my clients this all the time. Imagine you're in Vegas and it's a slot machine, right? For me to take your case, I need three things. I need a cherry to come up with someone who did something wrong. I need to be able to find and have a defendant. And then that dude better have some money. And you're only going to get money if all three line up and pay out. So this case doesn't matter if it's 2 billion, 20 billion, 200 billion. The top number is meaningless and utterly irrelevant. The only thing the court is going to look at is how much money is part of the settlement. What if we didn't settle, what is the best outcome the plaintiffs could expect from a money standpoint? They're never, never seeing more than probably one to one and a half billion dollars ever with this group of defendants. Right. So that's why I think you're going to see these defendants get these settlements approved. Right. The plaintiffs are taking half of these guys cash. That's that's rational. That, that's a that's a fair number. Okay. So the follow-on question is, because every class action settlement, of course, has the opt-out provisions. Yes. And this is why I just don't know. Is there such a thing as a class action opt-out? Yes. So so what you, you ever get those little <laughs> cards from Target or yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, your cell phone company yeah, 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 charge yeah. you and you, you got that three bucks? Yep. But that white card, if you ever actually read one, that's your opt-out option. That, yeah, no, I know. What I meant is can then – so if you opt out, right, do you have to bring the lawsuit as an individual plaintiff or can you bring it as a class action? No, there's a class of people who have opted out. No. So, so you can only bring it as an individual. So that was this my question. is the, the class action for this event. If you want to oh, be right part on. of the class, Good news. this is how you do it. Now, if you, you don't have to be part of the class, you can say, hey, you know, my, you know, 350 bucks that I'm going to get out of this is not enough. I want to go sue for my $3,000. Right. Or go have at it. Right. But you do not have the right to set up a brand new class of all the people who opted out. That's not a Th thing. That was my question. Right. No. Because again, I mean, I, I think one of the consequences of this is, okay, let's say it's one and a half billion, like you said, let's say two billion or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And the settlement class is the whole country. Right. 
I'm like looking at this going, okay, you've gone and told all these plaintiffs, hey man, you got overcharged by these people and you paid an additional $15,000 or $30,000 that you didn't have to. Well, there's no omission of guilt though. I, right, I'm just saying, but as part of the settlement, you're going to get three bucks. No, you'll you, part of if, if it's a two billion dollar settlement across the country, you're going to get more like what three hundred fifty bucks. Oh, well, sure, three hundred fifty. Right. I don't, I don't even think it's that much. I mean, how many sellers are we talking about? Yeah, we can do all that. I understand your point, right? It'll be three. You know, it'll be let's say a few hundred dollars. Let's say forty bucks or whatever, a couple hundred bucks. And I'm like, but I pay thirty thousand dollars. Like, how is screw that? I'm uh, opt out. You'll never I feel like. No, what? you won't. No, you won't. You're an idiot if you if you opt out. Yeah, God, the the, the lawyer fees alone the on this kind of grand. You're gonna go. You're gonna go hire a lawyer mm-hmm. for a hundred grand. Have your life disrupted for four years, so you can make some kind of argument, which is somewhat of an uphill battle, all by yourself. Right. So that you can get thirty grand, and you're gonna cut a check to your lawyer for a hundred grand for that. Nobody in their right mind is gonna do that. Okay. So, and that's why the absence of. So, in other words, like let's say. Five million people opted out. You still can't have a class action of the no. five million people opted out. And say, look, we're all the same, and no. we're going to go do this. No, so that is not a thing. No, if you this, this is the scenario, right? This is the case. You can have the benefits of everything that happened in this case. That, by the way, cost you nothing, or you can opt out and go at it on your own. That that's the condition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Um. Cool. So. Let's say there's a settlement. Let's say all of those things happen. The only real threat left at that point is the DOJ and the FTC because obviously they are not parties to this. Correct. Right. Right. But, uh, you know, I saw a panel at CMLS and I thought this was a good point. I forget what, what attorney talked about this, but in the case of MLS Penn, right, they, they objected. And I think the way it is right now is that we're waiting for the DOJ to say, okay, well, what do you want? Because as the, as the attorney that made the point on stage is like, we've never really heard from the DOJ. Okay, exactly. Okay. So then you tell, tell me how you want to do this. You've been hitting, this isn't good. This isn't good enough. This isn't good enough. Now it seems like the balls in their court to say exactly, well, this is how we'd like it structured. I mean, it, part of it, what I, I guess the hints we're saying is like, it's not a, they don't want to have a, a field for, they don't even care that the offer proposition is now zero. It's, they didn't want a field on the MLS or anywhere that even talks about that stuff, right? So that's a little bit of a hint, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're going to find out a bit more before we have to, that's going to inform, inform the industry of like what exactly they're looking for. Cause I don't think we've ever been told by them, what exactly do you fucking want from us? And they're almost, they're unlikely to tell us. That's just the way government works. You so they're going to come back over. being some opaque thing again, huh? Jesus. Yes. You take the most inefficient way of doing anything and that's what <laughs> this process is. And so, but we do know some things already, right? That they, they, it's clear that they don't want compensation in MLS at all, that they want buyers to pay the buyer agents in total, that, that listing agents need to be paid by the seller that there needs to be a full decoupling. That's clearly a standard that they're fine with and that they, they will like, right? And again, it's not a big deal. It, 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 it's totally fine. Where the DOJ, I don't see the DOJ getting involved. Well, it's not totally fine if if the buyer's commission is cannot be folded into the loan, I think. But it can right? I think 
Okay. Well, if that's what I'm saying, I mean, if, if, if with that caveat, because right. if you're going to ask, yeah, so let me just, I just wanted to mention that. Yeah. No, it, it can be right. So, and I've always used this, is the example I used from stage at CMLS last week, right? I'm a commercial practitioner, right? I've done 250 closings, uh, never inside of an MLS, no offer of compensation by contract made ever. And what we do is number one, we get a representation agreement signed before we start working. And then when we negotiate the terms of that contract for the, for the purchase by my buyer, I include a paragraph in the purchase agreement that says, seller, you're going to pay my fee. And that gets buried in the purchase price exactly like it gets done today. You do realize under this system of the seller paying the buyer's agent directly inside the contract, you do realize a closing statement at a title company or an escrow company looks 100% identical as it does today with both commissions on the seller side. Nothing changes. The only thing that changes is the number that shows up for the buyer's agent in that closing statement was negotiated between the buyer directly and the buyer's agent and had nothing to do with the seller or the listing agent. That's the only thing that's different. So you're going to see different numbers there. Different than what the seller ne negotiated with their own listing agent, right? That you, you'll rarely see the same number there, potentially. So do you think, I mean, this is a little bit kind of the Northwest model, right? Northwest MLS model. No. No? I mean, because I thought that that's, well, I guess the seller put that in there. Not It wasn't negotiated between the buyer. Well, I know it ends up being negotiated by the buyer's agent. So here's where it's different. In the Northwest MLS model, there's still an offer of compensation from the seller. So there's still a number in the MLS right. that right. the buyer's agent is putting. It could be zero. It could be whatever. It could be whatever. But, but yeah. the point is, the number, it, Greg, is determined between the listing agent and the seller, not the buyer. Yeah, right. So, but at yeah. the end of the day, it does, it does turn into a negotiation. Correct. Right? Is, yeah. Because if you put zero down there, and a buyer's agent shows up and says, I got a, an all cash buyer willing to play, put a full price offer in, but my commission is two and a half. You know, who fucking cares what, what the, they put in that th type of thing? If, if the seller's like, fucking A, I'll take that. Yeah, but that, that will never happen that way, Greg, because if you're, if you're, if you have all, if you have an all cash buyer, tell the buyer to cut you a check for, for your 2% or 3% or 20%, whatever the number is, right? Where it's going to matter is FHA, VA. It's your, it's your first time homeowner. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What you're going to see, what I predict you're going to see is on your first time homeowner type of home, maybe the first level move up, you're going to see sellers very willing to include the buy side compensation request in the, you know, in their contract. On luxury properties, right? The, the scenario you said, I'm going to buy a five million dollar house for all cash. As a seller, I'm going to take down sand. Pay, cut, cut a check for your own guy. Right? right. In the middle, you're going to have kind of fifty fifty. Right. If I've got a previous sale, I'm coming out with two or three hundred grand cash. I don't need help to pay my own agent. But if I need help, the sellers will help because it makes their property more marketable. Right. I have a question actually directly related to this, Ed. And this is something I was asked and I just didn't have the answer to this, right? Which is, is there a limit to the injunction power of the judge? Yes, Here's what I mean by that, right? So mm -hmm. let me set this up. 
we know that like the the FTC as a regulator could write whatever rule they want, as they could write some regulation that says, "Hey, exactly what you described. Here's right. how it's going to go. Buyer agent, you have to go get an exclusive agreement. Nothing will be in the MLS, and you have to include this in the purchase agreement and negotiate it with your buyer's permission." Blah 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 blah. Right. With injunctions, I feel like judges don't really have like the power to create regulations, craft, like that's not really what they do, right? So what's the limit of the judge's injunction power in this Burnett case? Right. I would suggest to you sometimes it is what they do. That's why we read the Wall Street Journal and other news reports when they get overturned. Um, so we had this discussion um, amongst a bunch of us lawyers, right, of exactly this question. It's a little open-ended, right? Because here you have a federal judge Mm -hmm. I understand the class of damages is the state of Missouri, right? But he's going to be asked potentially to issue an injunction to do what? One, the, the soft injunction, I think you guys, as you phrased it, right? Yeah. It's simply an injunction to tell NAR, you must remove your mandatory rule to offer compensation, which is utterly meaningless at this point. Um, and I'll be honest with you, it was utterly meaningless before NAR changed the rule from $1 to zero, right? The, to me, the whole issue about the mandatory offer is a red herring and means nothing to this discussion, right? Because the, the fact is every MLS system would take a buck, which is the same as zero. It's nothing. So that's one issue, one roadie can go that will still do nothing. Then he could also go the other extreme and say, NAR, I order you to issue a rule that says MLSs, you are forbidden from having a platform or including any offer of compensation in the MLS. He can do that. Now, the question becomes, is that an order for only the state of Missouri? Or can he argue, hey, look, in front of me, this, this case happened in Missouri. But the damage is billions of dollars out across the entire country. I think he absolutely can, at least at this level, argue, I have the authority to protect consumers across the whole country. And I'm going to issue that order that the NAR change your rule in that way, right? That you, you, your, your rule has to say to be an NAR MLS that you cannot have compensation. He can, I think he can go that far. Okay, but he can't. <clears throat> so in other words, he can't be detailed in the way that like the FTC could be detailed. No, his order would have to be to NAR right. on what NAR's rule would be. Okay, that's so the, the context. Can he, write the rule for he, can't, he can't just make an edict right. that brokers out there can't share commissions. No, he right. does not have that breath. Right, right. So, he, but he can like can he like craft a rule for NAR? Say, hey, NAR. I'm ordering you to implement this rule in your code of ethics or MLS handbook. That would be the top level of his potential authority. And would he be on a little bit of shaky ground? Maybe. Okay. And I'm sure they could have a back and forth too. Like maybe the, then NAR comes back. What about this language? Right. Correct. He could, he yeah. could propose a rule. NAR could, he could have a hearing. All right. <clears throat> I know we got to wrap, but I have a final question because this, okay. again, I, I brought it up and I don't have a real clear answer on this. Super serious bond or what's the appeal yes. bond. If NAR should lose Burnett, they have, you know, publicly taken the stance. Don't worry. This is going to be years because we're going to appeal it, et cetera. And then I learned about, and I think it was from you. Yeah. Before that though, you have to post this bond. 
So, like, could, let's talk about the bond. And okay. I went in, a little bit into it. It's like it seems a lot more complicated than it seems. Let's say damages out of Burnett. Again, that no one can pay, right? But the damages are $4.5 billion. Okay. And that's, that's a possibility of that, what the plaintiffs have claimed. Right. Yeah. That's what the plaintiffs have claimed, right? So and and anyone wants to appeal that, what's what is what is a bond they have to post? I have to do this because I'm a lawyer, right? Federal rule of, of civil procedure sixty-three. Uh, what it does is it gives you a 30-day stay from the time the judgment gets entered until such time that the defendant has to cut their check. And that the plaintiffs can start actions to try to collect. That's all you get, 30 days. Right. Appeal or no appeal. What most people do, and, and that's also, by the way, the time it takes to appeal. So the concept is if you're going to appeal, you go back to this judge and you have a bond hearing. And here's what the so so the judge has these competing interests to weigh. On the one side, he has in front of him a plaintiff that proved their case to a jury and got an amount of money. And that plaintiff should have some kind of insurance that if he wins these future appeals because he went through the court process that he should get his money easily. On the flip side, the judge has to balance the interests of a defendant who maybe got screwed at the trial process and there was an error and they and that they shouldn't have to pay money that they don't rightfully owe pending their appeal. So the judge has to put these two competing interests on opposite scales. Here's the perfection of a spot of an amount that the judge wants to pick. As a judge, I want to pick an amount for this bond that evaluates the payability, viability of the defendant. And I want to pick a number where the lawyers on the defense are pissed. They have meetings with bankruptcy attorneys the next week. And they eventually decide not to file bankruptcy, that somehow (laughs) they think they can pull through with this amount of money figure out how to get some liens on some property, you know, freeze up some of their their stock assets and and get the money in the way it needs to be without having to file bankruptcy. That's the perfect spot that the court's looking for. The court prefers that no one files bankruptcy, but wants it to be as high as possible right up against that level. Now, what happens if the judge hits it and you have 20% drop in membership the next year? Right. You can still end up with a bankruptcy or worse. What happens if a judge misses and and pins it too high and causes a bankruptcy? Those are all possibilities. So the important point here is that the damage award could be four and a half billion. But the judge could come back with, listen, the appeal bond is going to be one point two billion, something like that. Well, well, it'll it'll be the, the bond will be per defendant. So let's let's look at NAR. Right. With with what do they have? Six hundred fifty seven hundred thousand in cash and cash equivalents. No, yeah, no. I thought that three hundred million or so in cash. Okay, so three hundred million in cash, but but you you still also have equity on properties, right? They have about right. a billion in assets. You, yeah, so you have a billion in assets, right? But how many? How much of that billion is really um, liquid, right? So if you have an yeah. interest in a in a stock, you mm-hmm. don't get to have one hundred percent of stock because what if it goes down, right? So so there's that kind of analysis is what's going to be done, and maybe he picks a number at four hundred million or five hundred million. Right, enough that they won't have to file bankruptcy, but they are able to still function. Maybe it's two hundred fifty million. I don't know that number. That's that's for accountants and those kind of guys to figure out. But but it's not the full value of the case. 
uh, and it's not meaningless, right? Okay. It, it is a yeah. substantial. Okay. That, that's what I wanted to know because <laughs> the way the federal rules are written, it sounds like it has to be a full value of the judgment plus interest. Correct. Right. Plus, plus potential lawyer fees. Right. So the, the top end number can be really high, but in this case, it's irrelevant. It'll never be close to the top end number. It's going to be a number with the court balancing these various interests between protect the plaintiff as much as I can without causing the defendant to go bankrupt. All right. That's the balance point. All right. Man, this we could go great. on and on. Yes, good lord. Longer, like we'd love to have you back, man. As especially as the next couple of weeks, you know, progress, and we're starting to hear reports from the actual trial itself. But uh, this was great, man. This is yeah. something that yeah. should have happened weeks ago, months ago. Yeah, I, this I is all going to be settled here. anyway. So I, you know, it's. Uh, I think next week I'm we'll. In I, I think eventually it'll get settled, but I think we'll have some exciting times for the next couple of weeks of at least seeing a trial. Um, and then depending on what happens, it'll either settle or NAR will win. I think one of those two things is the likely event three days after. And I'd like to end with this comment. Don't freak out. Don't worry. It doesn't matter. The MLSs will be fine. Um, buyer agency is alive and well and will be fine. Um, and and don't look at this as some kind of existential ending event. It, it 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 we will get through this and everything will be fine and maybe even better. All right. Thanks, Ed. Let's leave it there. Thank you very much, Ed, for uh, for joining us. Thanks everybody for listening to us. Goddamn yammer about legal stuff. I mean, it, seriously, Greg, we got to do an episode like talking about I don't know, like sexy dances or something. Like we we gotta you know. Like our top you can't handle the truth. That's what I want to do. You can't handle it. Like something. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Ciao. Listen, content is everything. Two Brothers Creative makes it look easy. Right now, business owners really only have two options. The first option is hire a big firm. Now this big firm's gonna come in, make you think that they invented all the algorithms and start charging you thousands of dollars every month. You don't wanna do that. Second option is to do it yourself. Well, that means you gotta learn SEO, SEM, copywriting, marketing techniques on the web. Ugh, you should be really focusing on your own product. But now there's a third option. It's called content in a box. Give Two Brothers Creative 30 minutes a week and they'll handle everything. Plus, they'll show you how to bring it in-house later on. They'll rebuild your marketing foundation and give you tools and techniques and a new marketing playbook that'll actually produce real results and help you grow your business. Two Brothers Creative will give you the confidence and know-how to tell the SEOs and SEMs and all those other acronyms to get fucked. You're in control now. Get started today at thecontentbox.com.